You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Mas tenho coragem. Entrego minha força ao meu santo para libertar o meu povo. Louvado seja nosso Senhor Jesus Cristo. Copa Cabana Filmes apresenta a produção de Luiz Augusto Mendes. Deus e o Diabo na Terra do Sol Um filme de Glauber Rocha A dramática aventura de um homem que se perde entre um Deus negro e um Diabo louro Guiado por uma testemunha cega e perseguido por Antônio das Mortes Matador de Cangaceiro. Chama agora Satanás. Vou acabar com ele, Rosa. Vou acabar com ele. Ioná Magalhães é Rosa. Tel Rei é Manuel. Se entrega, Corisco! Otton ah! Bastos é Corisco, o Diabo Louro. Maurício do Vale é Antônio das Mortes. Sônia dos Humildes é Dadá. Lídio Silva é o Deus Negro. Nunca se fez no Brasil um filme como Deus e o Diabo na Terra do Sol. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Chris Dashu. I am the White Devil. 
Also back in the booth is Mr. Ken Stanley. I guess that makes me the Black God. Cinema Novo Month continues with a look at Glauberosha's Black God White Devil. The title in Portuguese is Deus e o Diablo na Terra do Sol, literally God and the Devil in the Land of the Sun. The film was released in 1964, which was a key year in Brazilian history. I think we'll be talking about that quite a bit when we discuss the sequel to Black God White Devil Antonio das Mortes later on in the show. You could almost see Black God, White Devil as a sequel to the film we discussed last week, Vida Secas. It starts in the 1940s and is set in the barren northeast part of Brazil. Our main character is another ranch hand who is being cheated out of his earnings. This time, however, the, our protagonist, Manuel, kills his boss and flees with his wife. They run into a self-proclaimed saint. Rosa becomes a killer, and the pair go on the run again, trying to find a place for them in the very harsh land. Now, we will be spoiling this film as much as we can, so be warned. So again, I don't think that either of you guys saw this film before now. I could be wrong. So, Chris, what did you think of Black God, White Devil? Obviously, I hadn't seen it before. My jokes on the last episode about being at can aside, no, I hadn't seen this before. I mean, look, again, this is... Completely outside of my wheelhouse in a good way, not not in a way that I'm obviously complaining about at all. But I think what you said is pretty apt. It is very much a spiritual sequel to Vida Secas. I mean, the whole film being set in the Sertau, again, it does so much on its own, you almost don't need anything else to understand the kind of situation that these people have put themselves in or and or are put in. I liked it more than Vida Secas. Because of the charismatic performance of Athan Bastos as Carisco and Mauricio Dovale do as Antonio Das Mortes. So I liked those performances a little bit more in this film than Vita Secas. But I think overall it's an interesting movie. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. But I think overall it's a pretty interesting film. How about you, Ken? Well, I had never seen it before. But it had been on my list because I knew there's a certain amount of reverence for a handful of uh, Rocha films. And back when I was a neophyte film snob, I, I would notice that these titles would pop up on these uh, 10 best lists for the every 10 years, the sight and sound poll and stuff like that. And since I'd never seen or heard or read anything else about him aside from the reverence that some critics gave him, I made a mental note of that. But it was like much more difficult to track down a movie like this back in those days. Now is a little more accessible, but it still seems really foreign. But, but I got to tell you, it knocked me out for specific reasons, and I'll get to that later. This was a first-time watch for me, and my goodness, I felt like I really had to go to school to understand a lot of this film. You know how I talked last week, like, oh yeah, Brazil, you got the Amazon and the big statue of Jesus. Uh, yeah, and that's about it. Well, fuck me, because this goes into so much Brazilian history. It's very specifically set in the 1940s. We talked last week about, okay, yeah, this is set in the 40s to kind of distance it from the time when it was actually made, but to show that the poverty is still there. Well, you know what? This is set in the 1940s, and they're talking about stuff that's happening in the 1940s. They're talking about stuff that happened in 38, specifically, with the death of Lampiao, and all of this stuff that I had to, like, 
run over to Wikipedia and I was just like, what are they talking about? You're making references to things. I didn't even realize like when they were talking about St. Sebastian, this black god that they meet in the first half of the film, I was like, okay, yeah, St. Sebastian. I know St. Sebastian. All right. Yeah. The guy with all the arrows stuck in him. And then I'm looking around. It's like, oh no, there's a whole movement called Sebastianism that happened in Brazil. And it all had to do with a reinterpretation of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and people waiting for this Jesus type figure to come back named Sebastian. So that's why suddenly St. Sebastian is now recast as this Messiah figure. I'm like, Oh, okay. So, man, did I have to do a lot of reading to even begin to scratch the surface of this film. There's a lot of mysticism, myth-making, and legends that run throughout the course of it. And and to a large extent, it's about myth-making and uh, uh, legends. You wouldn't know it on first viewing if you're coming cold to the film. Who is a historical figure and who isn't? So, yeah, so it's kind of ha- creates its own little world, but then you have to take into consideration that that, that was a real world. And Rocha talked about uh, the mysticism of the people of that region, that uh, it came from a combination of Catholicism and and Africanism, and it was a mix of that type of stuff, so, so mysticism was a part of everyday life, and, and that's a current that runs throughout. And Manuel is one of these guys who's just looking for a miracle. He is so primed and ready and is talking constantly to Rosa about, oh, this is a miracle. Don't you believe this is a miracle? And she's just like, yeah, I'd like to have some dinner, please. Can we, like, get to work here, you know? And I I had a big bone to pick with Manuel, who was there, like, feeding these root vegetables, I'm not sure what they were, into this, like, thing that chopped them up and then made, like, gruel out of them. And he's there just feeding these things into the the chopper. And there's poor Rosa just turning this wheel. And it looks like it's a big physical effort for her to do that. And I'm like, come on, dude. Why are you the one who's feeding this stuff in and she's the one turning the wheel? It just, I, I immediately dislike this guy. One for the, oh, it's a miracle. And two for the sitting around on his ass while his wife's doing the work. Yeah, he's a lot less sympathetic than the character in Vita Secas. Let's put it that way. The one in Venus Acus is just kind of, you know, a dullard. In this film, he seems actively unable to exist in a world that they're put in, which is, I mean, the Sertau is, it's in inhospitable badlands. And the fact that he's looking for a miracle in the Sertau is childish at best. But there are other children out there. And I think a lot of what the film deals with is also ritual and tradition and that could have something to do with the relationship between the man and the woman there is that traditionally the woman did this traditionally the man did that that could be a large part of it the one thing that really separates him from the character in last week's film is that when his boss mr morales starts fucking him over he doesn't take it and he takes a machete and machetes his boss and I was just so happy about that, to see the boss man being brought low, seeing the workers coming back and taking down the capitalists. That was pretty fantastic. Hey, who doesn't love that? I mean, this is what the character last week or in the last episode wanted to do to his boss, and he couldn't bring himself to do it. 
And Manuel in this film is he's able to bring himself to kind of break the wheel, as it were, and go on the run. And it's interesting to see the dichotomy between the two characters from two films that are talking ostensibly about the same thing. They're made one year apart, so I don't know if it was just like in the air or if this was just kind of a popular milieu to set things in this area and this time. But it's very interesting that we're talking about these two films back to back. And I won't say that they were chosen randomly, but it was like, okay, what, you know, going to Frederick Tutton, who actually wrote a lot about Cinema Novo back in the day. And I said, I'm thinking about doing this month. What are some films that you would recommend? And these were actually, I think all five films kind of got his seal of approval. So I had no idea going into this that we're going to have these two very similarly set films, one right after the other. And they are similar. They're very similar. But not in, but not in a way that's like, not in a way that makes me think any less of this film. I confess I did not see the other film to which you're referring. Oh, that's fine. But, but it's on my list. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, you weren't on that episode, so you're fine. (laughs) No, I wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about this Vita Sagas. (laughs) Well, basically, this movie begins where the last film ended, kind of. So that has this family, and in that it's more people. It's, father son it's father mother and then two sons and this poor unfortunate dog and they just keep getting fucked over by all this stuff he gets fucked over by his boss he gets fucked over by these soldiers all this kind of stuff and then at the end they're just kind of wandering back into the desert and it's almost like we pick up where that film left off but this time the father character has the cojones to put down his boss but then boom they're on the run And unfortunately, they run into the St. Sebastian character. And like I said, Manuel is primed and ready for miracles. And so this St. Sebastian, the black god of the title, he immediately starts preying upon Manuel and all of his superstitions. And he just, Manuel becomes this ultra devout follower within, it feels like, days. It's interesting you brought up like chronology. The one film leads into the other. Because watching this on its own, I do not get any real sense of time. There is, to the best of my knowledge right offhand, I can't think of anything that indicates any kind of modernity. The farming equipment you see earlier on in the film, it seems to be like something that could have been used in the Middle Ages or something. Are there any automobiles in this film? Well, even going as far as to the, the what the characters are wearing doesn't smack of modernity either. They're almost existing in a time and place that is meant to be in the last 100 years, but somehow feels more distant than the last 100 years. It seems out of time to me in that it's like, and this once again plays into the whole myth-making aspect that really appealed to me, personally. Because that's there in in the folk songs that come up, seem to come up out of this this guy, and the folk tradition is to set up a story to music, and once that's been done, it's kind of like setting a legend in place, you know? Like uh, Joe Hill or any number of examples of that. So you'll see something in the movie, and then a folk, uh, then there will be a folk song. And that, to me, seems like, okay, we've got instant history here, and we're presenting it in a form that, a digestible form that people can remember and take with them. And that's what myth-making is about. Yeah, it's almost like us as the audience seeing this in 1964, 
we're hearing the songs that were written about these people in 1940, but yeah, right then. And you're right, as far as the time goes, I don't know how many days they spend on this mountain with St. Sebastian. It could be a week, it could be a month, it could be a year. I have no idea how much time is passing because of the way that it's shot, and it just feels like all of these people are there following him, and he picks out Manuel from the crowd and seems to take a real special interest in him, and then does all of these things that they're humiliating to me. I guess they're tests of faith to Manuel, this whole thing of him crawling with this rock on his head. I guess he's just proving to Sebastian how devout he is. Actually, Mike, uh, you might know or remember that I had been in Portugal earlier this year, just before the uh, ban, and I was a group tour thing, and one of the places we ended up at was Fatima. And, of course, the Portuguese founded Brazil, one of those guys, Magellan or somebody, and they were colonized Brazil for a long time, and so the language is Portuguese over there. At the Fatima stop, which is where the apparition of, uh, you know, it was just part of the tour. It wasn't like, oh, my God, I can't wait to get to Fatima. Yeah, never one on your hit parade. It was funny, though, because you'd see these gift shops, you'd see these really huge statues of the Virgin Mary in an ATM machine next to it. <laughs> I found that amusing. But there were actually a, a couple penitents who did this thing where they lay out this long, 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 like I want to say 200 yards long, uh, rubber mat, and they walk on their knees the entire distance. So, you know, of course, that kind of thing is still going on. But that's exactly what that is, is a demonstration of faith. And I hear that the actor who played Manuel had the rock over his head. After the filming was done, he spent some time in the hospital from exhaustion. Yeah, that was apparently a very, actually very heavy rock. That's a devotion to the craft. Well, that shows you the commitment that's behind this movie, and I sense it. There's sloppiness, some unintended elliptical moments here and there, perhaps, but it really has a truth behind it and a strength of commitment that uh, I recognized and I, th I was impressed by. Because this was not a big-budget film. God, no. You can feel that this was made with just pennies, it feels like. I don't think that the area that we see them with this spinning wheel, that doesn't necessarily seem like a set. And pretty much everything else, other than the um, the death of Sebastian, I mean, that's all shot outdoors. I mean, the Sertau is as inhospitable for the characters in the movie as I can imagine it would have been for the actors when they were shooting. We get this close-up of this dead horse or mule and flies buzzing on his face. It reminds me of uh, Land Without Bread, the Boonwell documentary that he shot after uh, Golden Age. And I know that uh, Rocha had written about Boonwell, so that may have been a, an allusion to that. But also, that movie was about the Land Without Bread in uh, Spain, I believe, or Mexico. I can't really remember. But once again, it's about like this Really, really, really very poor area that has absolutely no resources. And to think that there'd be a gang of bandits roaming around this area, what exactly do they hope to find? Sebastian is hitting a lot of stuff in his speeches, things that I wasn't really 
picking up the first time I watched this, but watching it a second time where he's just like talking about Brazil and the Republic and, and I'm like, okay, well, this now starts to make more sense as far as the way that the Republic was embracing Catholicism and just the way that the Republic was built and all this. I'm like, okay, so I'm starting to put these pieces together. Still not 100% sure. I'm still sure that like a third grade Brazilian kid probably knows much more Brazilian history than I do. But it's like I'm starting to put the pieces together and see where he is and how he is manipulating folks and just like this whole messianic thing of like, I'm going to build an army and I need you to fight for me. And the way that he and his group would go into villages and, you know, scourge the, the people that were there and try to get more followers and try to punish the ones who weren't going to follow him. I mean, that's pretty typical messiah complex type behavior. Yeah. And it illustrates something that really resonates with me. And that is the dispossessed will be possessed by something. You know, I mean, if you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose, and there's a striving to find some kind of meaning. And that's why they create these instant myths and these instant legends, these rituals, because it helps give meaning to their lives. Because without that stuff, what do they really have? Well, and I think that that's, that's very clearly one of the big themes of the film is what did the dispossessed do if they want possession? What What happens when the dispossessed are possessed by something. And then when you that's when you have a character like Corisco, who is just the white devil. Well, I wanted to talk about the other white devil in this. And I, at first I thought the white devil... There's a lot of white devils in this. <laughs> at first I thought the white devil might have been Antonio Desmortes, who shows up about 35 minutes or so into the proceedings. And I love that when he's introduced, he's introduced with a song before he even says a word. And it's that little ballad that we're talking about and just this little song about Antonio Desmortes and how he shows up. And we've got the what looks like the capitalist or maybe the bureaucrat. And then we've got the uh, priest and they're hiring him to take care of this quote unquote false prophet. And he's, he makes a reference to the War of Canudos. So again, I have to go and look and find out about this thing, which took place at the turn of the century in Brazil, where it was the kind of a massacre had happened. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, you don't want another one of those. And again, there was this Sebastianism happening at this place. So this really plays into uh, more of this Brazilian history. And Antonio Desmortes, he he's this very quiet, spiritual type guy. But really, I felt like he kind of walked off the set of a spaghetti western. Yes, he walks the earth. Uh, <laughs> like Kane and Kung Fu? Yeah, the man with no name. He's this uh, ready-made, <laughs> one of those characters, like you're saying, Mike, just a spaghetti western, stoic uh, mystery man. It is odd because we're going to be talking about Antonio Mortis, the movie, uh, soon, but uh, he, he makes a transition. In this film, he is hired by the church and the government to clear out these Kangaseros, and who are the bandits who roam this uh, barren region. And it's interesting because the church, of course, the established church, the established religion, has the money to do away with this, like, 
offshoot branch. It's like they're the Branch Davidians or something. And we got to, you know, get, get rid of these guys. Well, yeah, they're a threat to their well-being, their monetary well-being is how I see it. Like, oh, these people are going after this false prophet. We need to save them from themselves. But more than anything, it's like the pews in our churches are probably a little less full than they usually are, and we're not getting enough tithes. That's my very cynical view of it. Well, and I think that that would be the view that Roksha agrees with, because that's very clearly what he's going for in the film. Yeah, we talked last week that the religious people kind of got off easy in Vita Sekas, but in this one, it feels like Roche is swinging right at him. And deservedly so, in some respects, if that's kind of their feelings on things like this that were going on in the Sertau, because, I mean, well, this is a fictionalized film, one can imagine something like this taking place in the 40s or whenever this film, again, like you mentioned, Ken, whenever this film is supposed to take place, you can imagine something like this happening in the Sertau because, again, it's an inhospitable bad land where people are fighting to survive and fighting to make a life for themselves more than just miserable roaming and wandering. I mean, I don't I know for a fact people weren't just roaming the Sertau like these characters in the last two films we watched were, but that's kind of all they're doing in these movies. It's very primitive. The whole setup is primitive, and I think it demonstrates how cults develop and all the stuff I've been talking about here with myth-making and legend-making and how these individual things, uh, talismans, uh, at one point Rosa finds a veil that she wears, and I think that, that in her mind she's going to become remarried. The only problem is she, ha- she has to decide who to remarry. <laughs> And uh, she does make that decision, but uh, that marriage doesn't last long, let's say, put it that way. We should probably talk about one of the most horrific scenes in the movie, which is when Sebastian murders a baby. Yes, let's dive into that horrifying subject. <laughs> Thanks for setting the mood on that one, Mike. <laughs> Jesus. It's not that it comes out of nowhere, but it kind of does. It comes out of the whole ritual, that ritualistic aspect, the whole... They have it in their minds that sacrifice is something that's that's religious in tone or something. So let's take an innocent creature and or an innocent baby and and slaughter that. It's terrible, but it has it springs from that same mindset of uh, a very primitive type of religious thing. And that's enough for Rosa. When Sebastian goes over and wipes the bloody knife on her face. That's it for her. She snaps and stabs him, thank God. And basically the whole, everything falls apart right at that moment. And that's when Antonio Desmortes shows up and starts slaughtering everyone. And I have to say, this this has to be an homage to Potemkin. Just the way that the editing is done here looks so Eisensteinian. There's a, lots of uh, Cave Eva Mexico type uh, imagery throughout the film, so... And Rosha uh, did was a fan of uh, Eisenstein, so yeah, no doubt that's uh, something he wanted to touch on, or something he did touch on. There's a blind character in both this movie and in Antonio Desmortes, and in both cases they think that they know the truth, but they don't, because I, I don't know if the blind guy is covering for Manuel and Rosa, or if he just doesn't know, because he starts to say that it was Antonio das Mortes that killed Sebastian when it was actually 
Rosa who did the murder. I think he he's kind of, relatively speaking, in the context of this movie, he's a pacifist. Antonio Dasmortes asks him about Crisco, and he says, yeah, he's there too. Don't kill, don't kill him either, or something to that effect. I mean, he's like, just stop it. Whereas uh, he, he says, is this how you show love to your, uh, to your Christian brothers, or something to that effect, is by killing them. And his response is something like, he has to kill to destroy all this misery. And, you know, that's just very... And I think Crisco has a, a thought similar to that at one point. So, it's like, it's madness, really. So we've brought up Carisco a couple times, and I just, I wanted to hold off because of the way that the movie just shifts gears. You know, we, we've had this whole thing about St. Sebastian, and it's basically like, that could be a movie unto itself. And so I was so surprised the first time I watched this when, okay, yep, they killed Sebastian, Antonio Desmortes is there, maybe he's going to go on their trail or something. And then suddenly it's like, here comes the music on the soundtrack again. And it's like, okay, yeah, time has passed. And, you know, the, the singer actually even addresses us as the audience. It's like, now pay attention, you know, <laughs> like kind of warning us that the movie is about to switch completely, not just like length of shots and distance from characters. I mean, we've had a lot of close ups. And yeah, we're going to get some close ups of Corisco, but we totally change filmic styles and everything as we move into the second half of the film. And I think it's like right around like uh, one hour, nine minutes, something like that. So it's like almost literally halfway through the movie, we just suddenly switch gears and introduce Corisco, who I didn't know also until doing research is actually a real person. So he, he is based on, well, Corisco, the, the real person, um, According to Wikipedia, and we have to believe everything that they say, was feared for his cruelty, and there was speculation that he would take control of the band after Angios, where where he had not been present. So basically, he would have taken over the band after Lampio died, except there's another person kind of in his way. So that's why he's constantly talking to Lampio. Like in his, uh, it's almost like he goes into like a fugue state and will have conversations with this person who's just been murdered. Oh, I would not have been surprised at any moment if anyone started talking in tongues. Film's very much set up for it. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it's the end of one story, the San Sebastian story, and the Carisco is just another. It's just another variation on that whole thing about finding something to believe in or finding someone to believe in or. When you don't know where you're going, you have no set ethics or principles or whatever, you're going to find something to throw your lot in with. And it goes from one character to another. That's just the way cults happen. This character of Corisco, I was enthralled but repulsed at the same time. He is so obnoxious. And just doesn't shut up a lot of times. And, but yet he is addressing us. He is talking to the camera so often that I feel compelled to watch him and to try to figure out what the hell he's talking about because he just, he just talks. He talks so much and he just like tells these things and he's talking about, Oh yeah, I cut off the 11 heads of policemen and I sent them here and, there. and I'm just like, okay, dude. 
his costume, this actor's costume, is based very much on these, how are we saying this, Cangaciero? They're bandits from this area, but they look more like pirates. Like, the way that their hat is reminds me of a pirate hat, and they specialized in bangles and ribbons and just this kind of elaborate crazy dress and this guy all dressed up again it feels like he kind of reminds me of like a Pancho Villa or somebody and I think that's what Lampio was to the Brazilian people was this kind of outlaw hero type guy Jesse James uh, J- Jesse yeah James. Uh, Jesse yeah. James and Pancho Villa and this would have been like a member of the the James gang, one that you would know, oh yeah, he was the third in line after Jesse died or whatever. I believe there's this, an establishing shot when we first see Carisco. I believe it's the first time we see Carisco. And it's from uh, a, quite a distance away. And you can't see his eyes or you can't see his face. You see these coins, you, but you don't see a face and it's just like an apparition or, or something or or a boogeyman of some kind because it's got this weird headdress and he's spinning around in a circle. It's just, okay, now we deal with this. If you're going to tell me that anybody went to the hospital for exhaustion, I would have said it was this actor because he just doesn't stop. I mean, the body movement, you know, I talked about how he shoots off his mouth all the time. He is just also all over the place. He's like this whirling dervish. It's an exciting performance. And, uh, is charismatic. Yeah, that's the word I would use is charismatic. He's for me, he's the best part of the film. I mean, there's a reason he's on every poster and his I mean, like you already mentioned, Mike, his look is so distinct that it's hard not to be enthralled by his character, even if he does tend to run his mouth a little bit more than he should. Oh, and he's glossing himself all the time. But it's characters like that that will find their followers. What it's very telling to me that when we were in the St. Sebastian half of the film, that Sebastian kept talking about this island, this mythical island. And he was like, well, there's, it's, it's a real island and it's out here. And then later on, he's like, no, no, I'm, it was a metaphor. It's an island inside of you. But he was talking about like how, uh, when God created the world, he separated the sea from, or sorry, he separated the sky from the land and that he's going to put them back together. And then I noticed that later on that Corisco says, I will fight until the land turns into the sea and the sea into the land. I mean, he is basically the other side of the coin from Sebastian. And it's like, I, I wrote in my notes earlier on, it's like Manuel just keeps trading one yoke for another. Like first he's indebted to, you know, his boss. And then he's suddenly is this follower of St. Sebastian. And now he's this follower of Corisco. I think he's, he's questioned about his motivation. I will avenge my misery. And I think that that's, that's as pure of a statement of madness as, you know, you come up with. He does bring up St. George, which I find interesting because the Antonio das Mortes, there's like the second title to that film is a reference to St. George. So it's like, even though that and Antonio, this film and Antonio das Mortes are made, what, five years apart, it feels like the conversation is just continuing rather than it being interrupted by anything. In Antonio das Mortes, we do see hints of modernity. There was 
quite a bit of tur- tumult in that period of time. I mean, I guess, uh, who is this, Jenko guy? Was the democratically, I want to say, elected president? And then, just like that, there was a coup, and then a leader, and then another leader of the coup. And during this period, there was supposed to have been like this facade of liberalism that allowed for activism until this Fifth Institutional Act was uh, put into place, which turned it essentially into a dictatorship. So, we're dealing with this history, real history, during the making of this film, and during the making of these films, and as well as other Cinema Novo projects. So, I'm sure that that really uh, is a significant part of the story that we're not seeing directly presented on screen, but I'm sure they're referring to it. You're right. It helps to have some back knowledge on this stuff. It's fascinating, but when you know more about it, it becomes, you know, a little more fascinating. Yeah, I have to imagine that this military coup was happening right at the end of when they're making this film of making Black God, White Devil, because from what I understand, it came out, the film came out June 1st, and this coup was taking place March 31st, April 1st. So I figure they had to be in like post production in May and June, or May, I guess. But who knows, you know, because yeah, I think that Antonio Desmortes and anything post Black God, White Devil is going to speak a lot more to the coup and to the stuff that's going on because. They are so steeped in history in Black God, White Devil that I can't see Rosha just dropping. You know, he's he's going to continue to talk about history, both past and now suddenly present as well. Though I think he's talking about the present by talking about the past, even in Black God, White Devil. Yeah, it's very thinly veiled, right? You know, paper thinly veiled. Let's just put it that way. That's to be expected as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, it's very thinly veiled in this film. Well, there's all kinds of other things. Uh, I know that the events of May 68 in Paris kind of like resonated throughout the world. And, you know, 68 was one of those years, much like 2020 will be looked at at some point in time, in which the world changed. This was made, I believe, during the summer of 68, if I'm not mistaken. And it came out in 69. So I know that, that there was, at one point, they were uh, trying to shoot the film in this province that contains, it's either a province or an area that contains uh, uh, a town or a city called Salvador in Brazil. And they just stayed and shot there because it would have been just too dangerous to go back to wherever they were planning on heading back to, Rio de Janeiro or someplace. So those events were going on concurrently. With, I mean, there were riots, there was uh, protests. That was going on concurrently with the production of this of Antonio Desmortes. Antonio Desmortes reminds me a little bit of Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie, because it feels like there's just this regular town and all these movie people there. And it feels like everybody that's not an actor is an extra, which is just somebody who's living in the town. If maybe they have what, like a dozen actors in this really. And they kind of move around from thing to thing. And we've got the return of Antonio Desmortes. We've even got the guy who is playing Corisco, but now he's playing a professor. And then he's got his new Antonio has his new enemy, which is another Lampiero. But to your point, 
this is not set in 1938, 1940s. It feels like maybe it, maybe we're, it's supposed to be set in that time, but yeah, this is totally modern. It's like they have these parades and stuff, and then you've got like this guy walking by and he's totally in like modern dress. I'm like, okay, are we supposed to be understanding that this is in the past? Is this in the present or is this just some sort of like bubble? And, I'm not saying it's not a criticism. I just found it interesting where it's just like, oh, okay, this is this is a neat way to make this story. Also, it could be a way of saying the past is in the present and the present is in the past. It's less formally classical film than Black God, White Devil. Frankly, it's kind of a mess, but it's a really, to my mind, like an agreeable mess. And it's like, it's a feverish film if we're talking about Antonio Desmortes. I don't know if I've seen anything that is quite like it. It seems to be put together with, you know, bubblegum and string or something. <laughs> it's really intense because it does not wander very far. I mean, Black God, White Devil wanders all over the place, right? I mean, it, it, it's a film about wandering to some extent. This is really contained, and it seems to be almost like a parable. Pretty much all takes place in this one village. It's very simple stuff, man. Have and have nots, you know? And, and, uh, we see Antonio Desmortes transforming from this thug for hire into this guy who, by the end of the film, wants to, uh, be with the people, so to speak. Both films were very commercially successful in Brazil. It was very popular with the film going public in Brazil, which is odd because they are strange films. Rocha won, won the Karn for Best Director for Antonio Desmortes. And I don't know if you guys seen the footage of him receiving that award, but he looks like I'd rather be anywhere else in the world. Because for one, one thing I'm being shown here, I'm seen wearing a tuxedo, and that's just not my thing. But at the same time, he made the movie, he went to, to, to the award ceremony, so it's a little baffling what was going on in his mind. Antonio Desmortes was a, he even said that Antonio Desmortes was a very popular character from that film. And so he makes a sequel with that character. But so at the same, he must have been torn between a lot of different forces, you know. All in all, I guess Cinema Novo did fairly well. The films were really produced very inexpensively and they all, pretty much most of them turned a profit. But that aspect has to be, plays a part with every filmmaker's, uh, you know, uh, career, they have to make decisions in some part based upon economic, uh, you know, situations. So he took a character that was popular, put him in another film. It seemed to be like a way of like, uh, Oh, Antonio Desmortes is back. <laughs> you know, uh, a commercial, you know, a, co a commercial conceit, but he makes a film that's stranger. I think in my mind, anyhow, well, it's definitely, a departure from the last film in many ways. And if the expectation going into this film was it was going to be like the last film, I can't even imagine what your expectation... Your expectations are shot the moment the film opens. But it's almost in a way it's kind of like taking a bad guy wrestler and turning him into a good guy wrestler, you know? Like, like a professional wrestler. <laughs> it's like the Terminator. This is a T2, yeah. This isn't meant as an insult, but I was really reminded of Godard while I was watching this. I was reminded of just the the ballsy way that he's doing this, the way that he's setting these 
old-fashioned type characters in this modern setting and not really giving a shit that he's got Antonio Desmortes, you know, playing pool and stuff, you know? <laughs> it, it, the, the film that reminded me of more than anything else was Weekend, the Godard film, because there are dialectics, there are dialectical sequences where arguments are set up that are rhetorical, and it just reminded me, and you mentioned historical characters or historical characters walking in and out of Weekend. And it has that kind of feel to it. And there's also somewhat of the color scheme is in there. And some some of the shots seemed inspired by Weekend, which Rosha had been in uh, Wind from the East, uh, which was one of the first uh, Ziga Vertov group uh, films that uh, Godard did with uh, Gorin. And he actually perf- he appears as an actor in, in that film. So he knew he was tight with uh, Godard. So I wouldn't be the least bit surprised that he saw Weekend and he wanted to do, he was influenced by it. Well, he'd even been written for Caillou du Cinema a few times by this point. The way that he's playing with stuff, the way that, you're right, there'll be, there's uh, the the Carisco substitute in this film who just, again, talks to the camera a lot. And there's so many of these shots where it's him and this woman in white and this black man in red, and they're just like all facing the camera in this tableau with all these people behind them. And it's just them talking at us. And I guess they're talking to Antonio Desmortes, but it doesn't necessarily seem that way. I love some of these sequences, like when that character and Antonio have their sword fight and they've got this, the pink scarf from around Antonio's neck between them, uh, between their teeth and they're fighting with their swords. Just, you know, it, it's simple, but it's effective filmmaking and that we have this whole story that's going on. At first, it's in the background, then it seems to move into the foreground where we have this blind man again, the coronel. And at first, I thought they kept mispronouncing coronel, misspelling it. And then I found that there was actually coronel is a thing in Brazil. But him and all of this like castle intrigue kind of stuff going on around him and this lascivious woman who wants this other guy to murder the coronel. And it's just like, okay, is that part of this Antonio Desmortes story or not? It's kind of debatable, but it's interesting to watch. Rocha described, uh, was asked about uh, the politics in this film. And he says it's not an ideological politics. It's not ideological polemics. It's, it's uh, a moral and survival politics, and which cuts right to the bone. I mean, uh, and I, I think that's on full display here. And the story is simple enough, and you know, you know the sides, and you know what's at stake. That's what the film is about. How that plays out, it can play out so that the good guys are bad for a moment, and then the bad guys are forces colliding, and and you know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I do like how they bring Athon Bastos back in Antonio Desmortes as a less uh, kind of useless character. Yeah, he's the professor? Yep. Okay, yeah. Uh, he seems to be really taken at the end uh, with the... Uh, would you, Laura, what would you, how would you describe her? She's supposed to rep- she's supposed to be bourgeois or what? Is she the woman in purple or the woman in white? The woman in purple. She's the one who I was describing as being lascivious, though I don't know if she's necessarily supposed to be that. But yeah, she seems like a uh, a troubled woman. 
a troubled woman, but a troubled woman who has ambition. And uh, once again, I, I think that uh, we have a woman, a protagonist in both films, who commit murder because they're not satisfied with their husband's response or, or, or their lover's response. And it's like they have to, they feel like they have to take charge and they end up committing murder. So that's something that ties the two films together as a little meme that's in both of them, as well as the blind man thing. And again, we've got that folk song kind of stuff that is tying a lot of this film together. And I do just really want to quickly point out how much I love Roche's use of sound effects that in this film there's chanting that is going on and at first it's diegetic and we see the people doing their chant and then later on it just seems to be on the soundtrack forever and it just never seems to end that there's this thing going on and in um black god white devil we had things like just church bells would start playing or we would hear gunshots when there are no guns going off. And it's just like, okay, just to kind of evoke a mood more than anything. And I think this chanting just playing in the background of so much of this film really talks about, you know, the people are restless and they are looking for change and they're following this new leader. And it plays out so much against everything else that we're seeing and to the point where there's even um i think it's the coronel who's just like stop that infernal chanting you know and it's like okay at that point in the movie i was like okay i can relate to that but i can see what roche is doing with it there is so much music there's so much singing you get songs breaking out uh here and there one of the characters will will uh, sing a song to mock one of the other characters that is a scene in the pool hall, which is kind of like a back, in a way, it's like a backroom kind of political deal going on there with uh, the professor and uh, Dr. Matos, who's, uh, and, and at one point they break into a song that they sing together. Uh, there's another point where Matos and Laura are singing a song while looking at jewelry there's, I mean, there's as many songs in this as there is in a musical, like Chicago or something. <laughs> it's, and, and there's folk songs that are in her, the, the folk song, which, damn, that's, that's hypnotic to listen to. That the, the one particular folk singer with just the acoustic guitar backing. And, uh, then there's the chanting and the, and the songs that, um, the consigeros are, are singing as like, it's woven through with music and with song. Did any either of you guys see the interview with uh, Scorsese about this film? I find it interesting that he's just fascinated by this movie, and when he he brings up the music and uh, and it's just like, oh, I've played this movie for so many musicians, and they love this music, and just talking in that Scorsese way, I love when he gets excited about a movie because it makes me excited about a movie. But he brings up the the long. Snake line, like there's a long with uh, the blind guy and Laura sitting on a being carried through a deserted barren landscape, uh, and that's where the folk where a folk song hits its stride, I think. But there's also uh, a scene when they drag Matos's body out somewhere, and Laura's there, and the professor's there, and it's a I don't know how to describe the scene, Mike. I have just as few words as anyone else on this on this podcast does. Let's put it that way. 
And the music at that particular point is like an operatic voice and this cacophony that's accompanying it. And it's a very, very strange sequence where it looks like they're trying to attempt to have to make love on top of this guy's corpse. And he's covered with blood. And then there's a, the priest coming around, running around in circles around them. It's just totally bizarre. That's an example of music in there, which is like, it, it is irritating. But at the same time, it's kind of compelling. And you're wondering what's what the point is at this point in time. And, but you, you figure it's got to be emblematic of something. I'll tell you this much about this film versus the last one. Uh, while I'm glad we watched Black God, White Devil, Antonio Dasmortis, I think for me, is the much more entertaining film and a much more interesting, I think, interesting film. Yes, yes. It is intriguing and compelling, and I can't put my finger on exactly why. But, well, I said that the, the first film was more, was more formally classical. And this one is just, all over the map, and it, like I said, it's feverish. Well, like Mike and I were talking about at the uh, at the outset about you know uh, Black God, White Devil, and Venus Acus. I mean, those films are same head uh, or different heads of the same coin. This is unlike either of those movies, and that's perfectly fine. But I, when I sat down to watch this film, I did not know what to expect, and even if I had known what to expect, it still would have been completely just. Not at all. I couldn't even fathom what this movie was going to be having watched Black God, White Devil. Let's just put it that way. It was very successful for a Brazilian film. I, I think they said it made like five times its cost back, which may not seem like a, a lot. And there's some documentary clip I, I saw where somebody said, it made a million dollars. But that was a lot of money for that kind of film at that in that country at that time, you know, and it won the one of the prize at Cannes. Yeah, and then I also saw a little documentary uh, about the re restoration of the film, and Rosha was on there saying that eventually the government banned this movie, and I can't say I'm surprised. I'm surprised it ever played because it's just so incendiary, and I'm not sure when it got banned, but the travails that they went through to restore this film to what we see today were massive, and they're talking about, oh, we found a print here, and we found a print there, you know, it was a pretty good print over here in, in France, but then the subtitles were burned in at this point and this point, and then they found a print in Cuba, and I think the documentary about them rest restoring the film is at least 40 minutes long, and I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. My understanding was that uh, it was banned and censored, but it got accepted at Cannes, and so the, uh, as being a prestigious type thing, the, uh, dictator in Brazil says, well, of course, you know. Right. Yeah, I think it was much later after it played. Cause yeah, you're right. It did make Buku box office, but then at some point, and I don't know when it was, it ended up getting banned. If nothing else, it makes the Brazilian people in general, I mean, it, it's a dire depiction of humanity. <laughs> It was like an offhanded comment that Rosha made about it being banned. So I was just like, all right. But then at the same time, it's like the people in Brazil were like, we had no copies of this movie. We had to look outside of our own 
country to get this. And they had their original negatives were all being stored somewhere in France. And there was a fire which wiped out everything. So it was a major ordeal for them to do it. And the, I want to say they were doing it in the early eighties possibly. And I'm not sure how long it took them, but there was actually some computer restoration stuff going on, which is, you know, what we do today. So it's, I was very curious about like, well, okay, well, when, how long did this process take? And did you re-restore it once computers were around? Because they were talking and showing like some of the just filthy <laughs> film prints that they had scratches and just muck on these things and just how, much they had to do to clean this stuff up was just incredible. Yeah, a film like that, it's you wonder how it got made to begin with. <laughs> you wonder how it got shown. And, uh, yeah, the idea that it was taken apart and put back together again is kind of fascinating. I liked both of these movies, but I'm going to err on the side of the one that wasn't technically the one we're supposed to be talking about is much more entertaining, but for reasons that I wasn't anticipating. I was knocked out by uh, Black God, White Devil, because it deals with stuff that I kept going on and on about myth and legend and stuff like that. And I was not expecting that. And, and that whole uh, millenarian-type thing, uh, people going crazy and start believing all manner of things. I read this book a long time ago called The Pursuit of the Millennium, which is about uh, these groups that... You know, they break off and they try to find some kind of create a paradise somewhere and they all end up killing each other and stuff. It's like cults always grow smaller. That's why there's hope for us in America. <laughs> so I find that kind of thing fascinating that people share the same madness. And that's what really came across to me in uh, Black God, White Devil. For that reason, that movie kind of resonates with me, but cinematically, Antonio Das Mortes is even more daring and bold, and it's, yeah, I could go either way, but I'm probably leaning towards Antonio Das Mortes as a more interesting all-around film, because it, it's, I don't know, it's just something really very stark and outrageous about it, you know? And it's got a really bitchin' poster, too. It sure does. And the character, you know, it's one of the oddest characters, uh, Antonio Das Mortes, like, and I agree with you, Chris, the Crisco character in the first film, damn, <laughs> you know, that's a, there's something very iconic about that character. And I don't, did, chronologically, where would he fit in the whole, you know, Sanjuro, <laughs> uh, in, in that, in that line, lineage, you know, Sanjuro would have come before, I know, but like, Who's the first guy who wandered the earth? <laughs> right. Well, Fistful of Dollars came out in 64. Okay, so it's like, you don't know. <laughs> it's a tie. <laughs> but I, I really did get a lot of that Italian spaghetti western vibe through both these films, really. A little bit more so in Antonio Des Mortes. But, you know, the soundtrack on that is like, oh, man, it's all over the place. It's wild and it's... It's amazing uh, the different kinds of uh, musics that are, you know, make sense in the context, but still is a wide variety of type of stuff from the operatic to folk songs, you know. All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. 
1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at twilightzone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, or you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy and filmmaking Nick Richards in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heather's, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future... Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course, SoundCloud. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Galabarosha's Terra M. Traz. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ken and Chris. So, Chris, what has been uh, keeping you during this pandemic time? Podcasting and or lots is, of uh, the pandemic over? Oh, it is not over. Wrong answer. Big time. No, no, no. The pandemic is not over. Do not listen to the people without masks on. They are ugly with or without them. <laughs> no, um... 
podcasting has kept me busy. Honest to God, podcasting has kept me sane. I mean, look, realistically, I don't want to go on a diatribe here, but I haven't been able to see my friends any more than a lot of us have. But, you know, that's okay, because a lot of my friends, I was not really able to hang out with them on a daily basis in physical form anyways. Uh, you know, Mike, you and I outside of podcasting are friends. So I have kept myself busy with podcasting because that is the only way that I can stay sane. So if you want to check out my podcast, casualty underscore Chris on Twitter, the culture cast is my movie podcast. Scary stories we tell is the new podcast that I've come out with, with my co-host Jess. It's a kind of supernatural true crime podcast. That's what's kept me busy and sane. And Ken, how about you? What have you been doing during these lockdown times? I've been reconnecting with some people. I've been making music. I've been reposting uh, music on uh, Bandcamp. Just do a search for Ken's Loud, Ban- Ken's Loud Band on Bandcamp. We've been putting up uh, last couple months. In the middle of each month, we're going to put up a new collection of old stuff. And while we are simultaneously making new stuff, we're expecting to be putting up like an album a month for the next year or so. And uh, yeah, because backlog material, we've decided to archive and put together in this form or that form, making music and, uh, you know, reconnecting with a lot. It's funny how I've been seeing or hearing from and messaging with people. uh, They're coming out of the woodworks. (laughs) I haven't spoken to in a long time time and now we're reconnecting and stuff so i would spend like close to four hours a day on the telephone and uh that's a lot for me you know uh because i wasn't doing all that much prior you know talking that much with people in the before times in the before times you know now it's almost like i would god give me a day off from this (laughs) (laughs) just hope that they don't listening to this But I try to get them to, you know, I I say, you're really missing out on, you know, like a fine, even if you don't listen to an episode I'm on, you should listen to the projection booth. Thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You can also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.